identified very much with the things that he had to say. Agor begins this chapter of wisdom by first confessing his own weariness to God. This is what he says in verse 1 of chapter 30. The man declares, I'm weary, O God. I'm weary, O God, and worn out. He approaches God with humility and recognition of great need. He confesses that he's weary. He confesses not only that he's weary, but he confesses his own ignorance. Verse 2, he says, surely I'm too stupid to be a man. I'm, I'm not the understanding of the man. I've not learned wisdom, nor have I have knowledge of the Holy One. Despite 29 chapters of wisdom, Agor recognizes, I have not arrived. I still lack wisdom that I need. He's not graduated from his ignorance, and he still very much needs God. And so he transitions from confession to an adoration. In verse 4, he begins to ask questions that could only be answered with the answer, God. He says, who has ascended to the heavens and come down? Answer, God. Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Answer, God. Who's wrapped up the waters in a garment? Answer, God. Who's established all the ends of the earth? And then he praises God for his personableness. What, what is his name? What is his son's name? Surely you know. And he did know. Yahweh was his name and Israel was his son. Agor praised God for his powerfulness, his personableness, he praises God for his words that never are false. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and be found a liar. And that's where we left off last week. And now we turn our attention to verse 7, where the prayer changes. Having confessed his weariness, God's greatness... Now, Agor has some requests. And so let's read verses 7 through 9, and then we're going to pause and pray that God would help us to understand. Verse 7. Two things I ask of you deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. All right, let's pause and pray. Father, we come to you asking to help us to understand this word that you've preserved for us for thousands of years. Father, I pray against any distractions that might keep someone in the room from seeing the truth that God Almighty might press into their hearts this morning. God, I pray for the person in the room who is not a Christian, who is not here to, to learn anything new, who is here for some other reason. God, I pray that they would see true things from the text of Scripture and be moved to believe in the one true God. I pray for the Christian in the room who needs to be convicted for the ways they've slipped away from you, for the Christian that needs to be encouraged for the ways that they've suffered, 
in recent days, God? Would you do a thousand miracles through the word read and explained and understood? And I pray that you would protect me from caring about anything other than the glory of Christ Jesus. So we pray that you would speak now through your servant by his grace and for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. <clears throat> now, Agor is providing us a chapter of wisdom, and I don't think that what he provides us is an accident. I think the prayer that he's chosen to lift up to God here was chosen deliberately. It's chosen to be a model prayer for a wise man. The Holy Spirit of God, through Agor, is modeling something for us. This is not just what uh, Agor had been journaling about that week. This is, this is chosen particularly with a readership in mind. And the significance of the prayer is emphasized with the second half of verse 7. Listen to it. Two things I ask of you, God, right? Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't normally include in my prayers, deny them not to me before I die. My pre-meal prayers do not go, Lord, bless this food to my body, deny this not to me before I die. Perhaps a few hundreds of uh, Cain's chicken meals, I should be praying that. This phrase, right, is a single, uh, this, this, a signal to the importance of the prayer that is to follow. Uh, it's not that Agur is in some sort of immediate danger of death. Rather, he hopes that his entire life, from that moment till the time that he dies, would be characterized by the request that he is about to make before God. And, and Agur's prayer reveals a lot about what Agur believes about himself, about his God, and about what is most important. This prayer reveals what he desires most from his life. And let me just pause and say this, your prayers always reveal what you desire most in your life. They have a way of exposing your heart's posture before God. What you think about yourself, what you think about your God, and what you think is most important. Our prayers expose what we believe, and so does our prayerlessness. Our prayerlessness expose what we functionally are believing about God, about ourselves, and about what is most important. And I want to work through Agor's prayer here, examining what his prayer shows us about what he believes most deeply. So we're going to see two truths about himself, true truths about his God. Firstly, truth number one, if you're a note taker, Agor knows he is susceptible to living a lie. Verse 8, first request. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Agur knows that the sinfulness of man makes every human being truth-averting. I mean, ever since Adam and Eve embraced the lie of the serpent, the curse of mankind is that they prefer a lie rather than 
the truth. Paul articulates it in Romans 1.18. He says that the wrath of God's revealed against, uh, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What is their unrighteousness like? Well, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Agor is concerned about being a person who suppresses truth, but not with just being a person who tells lies. He's concerned that he himself might live a lie. I don't think the English word uh, falsehood really encompasses all the nuance of the word that we find here. The, the word for falsehood here, it's, it's a big word. It's a big word in the Hebrew Bible, shows up in one of the most important texts of the Hebrew Bible, shows up in the Ten Commandments. This word shows up in Commandment 3, only in that commandment it's translated as vain. You'll recognize this verse, Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Same Hebrew word for falsehood later. So the word used in, in Proverbs 30, falsehood, and Exodus 20, vain, could be translated like worthless or futile or inconsequential or emptiness. To take the Lord's name of vain, in vain is to associate with the name of the Lord, but not really mean it. Vainly, in emptiness. It's to say you follow the one true God without truly following the one true God. It's to take on the name of God. Yet for people to look at your life to not see God at all. When Agor pleads with God to remove from him falsehood and lying, he's pleading with God to keep him from a life that contradicts his confession. A life lived that doesn't line up with God's word, a wasted life, an empty faith, a self-deception. He's asking God to protect him from living a lie and thus proclaiming a lie about God with how he lives his life. There's a recognition that he is susceptible to this kind of behavior, that he's susceptible with this type of vanity that to, to waste his life. He needs protection from God, from the kind of thing that Jesus warns against in his Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus warns against this frightening position of standing before God in Matthew 7, 21, and God saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven, on that day, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then uh, will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, the, the characters in Jesus' sermon here took the name of the Lord in vain. They took it in emptiness and falsehood. And they wasted their lives. They actually lived a lie. And Agor wants nothing to do with that kind of existence. He wants to live his life in a way that corresponds with truth. Because he's already reminded us in verse 5 of chapter 30. What does he remind us? Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Well, what's going to happen to those who live a lie? Verse 6, do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. When's the last time you've prayed for this kind of protection? I mean, do, you, do your prayers reflect this kind of self-awareness that you too are susceptible 
to living in a kind of spiritual emptiness, a religious vanity where your life doesn't match up with what you say you believe. I think all of us should be aware that we have that capability in us to, to say one thing and live another thing. And so I think at least one of the prayers that we should bring to God pretty often is this kind of prayer that Agor brings where he prays, remove far from us falsehood and lying. Or, or perhaps put another way, in the words of Jesus, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Agor's first request very naturally leads into his second request. So look at verse 8. He goes on and he articulates a particular kind of lie that he wants God to protect him against. Verse 8 again. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Now this is it's a strange prayer. Right? So he asks God, do not make me poor, O Lord. And he asks God, do not make me rich, Oh, Lord. Now, the request to escape poverty is an understandable request. Like, that's normal, right? Like, it's a normal thing to not want to be impoverished and hungry. Anybody, everybody can jump on board with a prayer for God not to let us be poor and hungry. But the shocking part about the prayer is that Agor would pray for God to protect him from being too wealthy. Now, if I were to take a poll in the room, I'm betting that very few people in the room prayed this week for God to protect them from making too much money. Show of hands, anybody? <laughs> anybody pray that God would protect them from making money this week? It's a strange prayer, not just for our culture. It would have been a strange prayer for his culture, too. So then you got to ask the question, okay, Agor, why in the world for your model prayer for us to learn from, why, why in the world would you teach us to pray like this? Well, again, Agor's prayers are informed by what he knows about himself and the temptations that allure him. Verse 9 gives us his reasoning. Verse 9, lest I be fool and deny you, and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Truth number two, this is what Agor knows about himself. Agor knows he's tempted to forget God and trust self. He's tempted to forget God and trust self. For Agor, this prayer is very much more about whom he will trust with his life than it is about his bank account. True wisdom, true life abundant, true life eternal, it's found on one path. The path that fears God as God. The path that worships God as God. The path that puts God in his rightful place. And Agor recognizes there's two ways to fall off this path. Two ditches on each side of the road. There's a danger in wealth. If he's too wealthy... He recognizes this about himself, that he may be tempted in his fullness to forget that he needs God at all. Material fullness has this effect on the sinful heart that with prosperity, we can actually become less thankful. That with prosperity, we can actually become more entitled. 
And with prosperity, we can assume that we deserve what we have. We can become less dependent, less prayerful, more self-sufficient, more self-centered. Under the delusion of temporary prosperity and comfort, we forget how much we need God. And how near and how long eternity really is. Agor knows that the temptation of his heart will be so full on the stuff of the world that he has no appetite for the things of God. And he knows this not only because he knows himself, but because he knows his Bible. We said over and over again that the kings of Israel were expected to hand uh, copy the law that they had, the Old Testament books they had, and to read over them day by day. Uh, supposedly, he, he, would, he would know this, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 17, the people of Israel have had this great salvation out of Egypt. They've been, they, they then have gone through this season of the wilderness where things are very difficult. They're relying on the Lord every step of the way, and they're about to come in the promised land. And this is what Moses warns them against. More than just once, but I'll just give this one passage. Deuteronomy 8, 11. Listen to what Moses warns against. He says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and rules and statutes which I command today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there's no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers didn't know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. This is what Agor does not want to happen in his life. He does not want to fill his belly on the good but temporary things of this life and lose his hunger for the God who gives life eternal. In his book, Hunger for God, uh, Piper writes this. He says, if we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because we've Drug, drunk so deeply from God and are satisfied, it's because we've nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great things. Perhaps you identify with that side of the prayer this morning. All your needs are met this morning. Not only are your needs met, but a lot of your wants are met. Your life is comfortable, your house is nice, your family is nice, the income is nice, but your prayer life stinks. And you haven't led anyone to Jesus in years, and you aren't really sacrificially discipling anyone. And I just want to ask you, can you remember a time where you were less well-off materially, but better spiritually? Can you remember a time when you were more desperate, and when that desperation actually led to a moment where your prayer life was rich, your missional life was vibrant, and you were growing in the Lord. Agor recognizes that when life is good and all is comfortable, he tends to forget God and trust himself. I feel this encroaching drift in my own life. I mean, there was a once a time in this ministry here at this church when we first began uh, where there was nothing comfortable about it. 
And we were talking about it this morning, sitting with 15 people in a circle on concrete floors, having moved our lives out here, wondering if uh, I could actually make a living doing what I'm doing, if, if anybody would come, if anyone would get saved. I remember there was a kind of desperation to our prayers, like, God, if you don't save people, we will have wasted years of our lives. If you don't, if you don't do something, we will go under. We, we won't have enough money to, to do this. We won't have any people to do this. God, if you don't work, if you don't bring people to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we, we, we're up the creek with no paddle. We got, we got nothing if you don't work. And, and how easy it would be as the Lord has done miraculous things over the last eight years for us to just kind of now get comfortable with what we do week in and week out, and for me personally, just to stand up and teach the Bible, because it's what I do every week, and to forget that it's all by His grace and for His glory, and that I desperately, if I want to see anything miraculous happen in this room, I need God to do it. How easy it is, even in our ministries to others, to forget how desperately we need God to work. Igor recognizes that his tendency to forget God when things are good is a serious problem. At the same time, he recognizes that the grass isn't greener on the other side of the poverty line either. You know, when the grass looks greener on the other side of the fence, it's just because you're not over there messing up the grass yet, right? So he, he, he recognizes that if you swing the pendulum too far the other way, that his, his temptation is going to be exactly the same. There's danger in wealth, but there's danger in poverty. Look at verse 9. He says, lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. So whereas prosperity causes us to forget that it's God who provides, poverty has a way of making us so desperate that we take matters into our own hands. So when things get really bad and you're not sure how you're going to pay the bills or you get through to get through some kind of situation, the temptation then is God's not doing it, so now I got to do it. I need to take matters into my own hands, do things my own way. The temptation is to doubt that God is able to provide at all, so let's ditch God's way, let's pave our own way. Poverty can do this, suffering can do this, failures can do this, shortcomings, ongoing sin struggles can do this. We can get to the point in our Christian lives where we believe God's not helping us, and we start to believe He's either unable or unloving to do so. And our sin nature kicks in and it drives us to profane God's name altogether and say, I'll do this myself. Again, Agor knows his Bible. He knows that when the Israelites had just been saved miraculously from uh, Egypt, they get into the wilderness and within a few days of being hungry, they start grumbling at the God who just saved them. Exodus 16 Verse 3, Israel speaks to God and they say, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They're so quick to forget how good God has been the moment that it gets bad. Agor knows himself. He knows his Bible. He knows the nature of mankind. There's dangers in prosperity. There's dangers in poverty. So what is it that Agor is actually asking for? He's asking for a kind of contentment in God's provision, one that coincides with truth, 
one that makes God look most glorious. So we see these two things that he believes about himself. Let me show you two things he believes about his God. Truth number three. Agor knows his God is sovereign. Now what I mean by that is Agor's prayer shows that he believes that God has the power to hear his prayers and answer his prayers. He believes God has the power of protecting him from living a lie. (laughs) I mean, like God... Remove falsehood far from me. It's within your power to do that. Not only that, he believes God has the power to make him rich. God has the power to make him poor. God has the power to provide for his every need. There's no question of who has the authority in this prayer. Agor's God is both personable enough to hear him and powerful enough to answer him. Now, Agor was praying, just as Jesus much later would teach his disciples to pray, Right? Matthew 6, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as is heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need today, O God. Everything about the Lord's Prayer, everything about Agor's Prayer revealed to us a theology of God. One who personally listens to you and powerfully is able to answer you. Now, again, if I pause and ask, what does your prayer life say about your theology of God? If, if, all, if, I, if you weren't able to explain to me what you believe about God, and if all I had were your prayers to gauge what your God was like, what would I say about him? How, how, would, I, how would I describe your God if all I had were the manuscripts of your prayers? By listening to Agor's prayer, we learn that his God, he's got to be sovereign over the external matters of the world and the internal matters of the heart. But that's not all we learn. Truth number four, final truth this morning, Agor knows his God is worthy of all praise. There's, there's an underlying motivation for everything he's saying in the prayer. His requests are driven but what he thinks is most important in his life, namely living for the glory and honor and praise of God. Look at verse 9 again. What is it that he just doesn't want to do? What is it that he just cannot live with himself if he does? Lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The number one concern here is that Agor not profane the name of his God, personal pronoun, intentional. In other words, he's more concerned with magnifying the God whom he loves than he is reaching any kind of financial or material, material or professional or relational milestone in his life. There's one consuming desire, that he know God and that he make God known. He's, this prayer is living out the w- wisdom's call from the first nine chapters of the book. The first nine chapters, or chapter two, verse three says this, if you call for insight, if you raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures you'll understand the fear of the lord and find the knowledge of god what's the treasure what's the silver what's the thing that makes life worth the living the fear and the understanding and the knowledge of god 
Agor's prayer communicates what his treasure is. Now, and again, I'll just pause and ask, does your prayer life reflect a heart that desires the praise of God above everything else? I don't know what that question looks like for you in your life. I know for me, man, I have big, grand, glorious desires for what I might get to see God do in this church, right? So, I mean, I want to pray, Lord, may we bust at the seams. May there be people in every single seat, shoulder to shoulder, be hot and sweaty and uncomfortable and not care because they're here to hear the word. And we're just like China, just an underground church in China. We got... We have to pull out some of these light bulbs or something, make it look like China. And everybody's just packed in, you're sweating, and everybody's just coming to hear the word. And then we're overflowing to plant churches, and it's big, and it's glorious. I got desires like that. Like, God, I want, I want to see a movement of healthy churches planted in New Orleans. But I have to check myself and say, God, what if the most glorifying thing for my life for you is to be faithful in this pulpit and for this church to shrink over the next 50 years of my life? And me be glorified, and or you be glorified in the fact that I'm most satisfied that I get to serve my king no matter what it looks like on earth. I have to check myself. What, what, am I, what am I praying for most, and why am I praying it, right? Is it because the glory of God is most important in my life, or, or is there some other motivation that has taken the place, and I'm actually living a lie? It, it sounds really pretty and spiritual, but there's actually a self-glory that's driving the motivation. That, that has to be something I wrestle with. So what is it that you have to wrestle with? How do you, how do you, How do you shape your prayers in such a way that says, God, this is what I want? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Because it's your glory that's most important. Are you willing to pray to God with sincerity? Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Feed me with the food that's needful for me. And I could add, just from the context of the whole verse, and is glorious to you. Agor prayed a beautiful prayer. But his prayer serves us only as a model to be emulated. I mean, this text, Agor is a great example in this text. His priorities seem to be spot on. But if all we had in the Bible was good examples of what our hearts are supposed to prioritize, we should be pitied. If this message were to end with a, hey, do better and love the right things, pray better, then we of all people should be pitied. Because the fact is, we all know what we're supposed to value most. We know we're susceptible to living a lie and self-sufficiency, but that knowledge doesn't stop us from failing. That knowledge doesn't change our hearts. That knowledge doesn't restore our relationship with God. We need more than a good example of a good prayer. Agor admits his own weariness, his ignorance. We need somebody better than Agor to stand up and stand in the gap to pray what we can't bring ourselves to pray consistently. We need someone who never walked in falsehood, never told a lie. We need someone who can pray for us fully and finally what we should have been praying for ourselves all along. What we need was the whole Old Testament is leading us to. What we need is Jesus Christ of Nazareth who never drifted into lying, never denied his father, never profaned the name of God. He never lived a lie, never acted in a way that was contrary to the truth that he believed about the father. We need a Jesus who prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus came from eternal riches where he never sinned, 
And he came into extreme poverty at the cross where he never sinned and remained faithful all the way to the end. He did perfectly what Adam and Moses and Israel and Agor couldn't do. He never profaned the name of God because he's God in the flesh who lived for the glory of God perfectly and became for us what we couldn't be. The substitute for our sins. He takes all the punishment for all the ways we failed at every point in this sermon up until now. Through faith in Jesus, we are forgiven. That's, that's why I can say, do this and do this and chase after it because it's a treasure and you not be left, left crushed by the weight of your failures because at the end of every do this, there's a reminder, he did this. Someone has done this perfectly already on your behalf and has saved you through your trust in him. So now you're free to do this because he did this. We have an advocate before the Father who never ceases to represent us before the throne. And as we pray our feeble prayers, as Agor taught us to do, Jesus' prayers for us never cease. Let's pray, Christians, with confidence, knowing ourselves, knowing our God, knowing that the answer to all Agor's sins struggle was the one who was promised to come, who would overcome sin entirely. I want to close with this. There's a, there's a scene in Revelation where John's in the throne room of God, and there's a scroll that contains the declaration of salvation to the ends of the earth, the plan of the consummation to, to fulfill every purpose of God. And this scroll is sealed, and the question is asked, who's worthy to open this? Like, who can, who can do this? And John laments that no one can open the scroll because no one has lived a life worthy. Everyone has fallen on either side of this ditch that Agor has just presented for us. King David wasn't worthy enough. Simon wasn't worthy enough. Agor wasn't worthy enough. John wasn't worthy enough. And then through teary eyes, he looks up and he beholds a lamb who looked as though he'd been slain. Jesus of Nazareth who takes the sins of the world on himself. And let me just conclude with this from Revelation. This is the song they sing, and then we'll pray together. They say, they sing together, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and living creatures and the elders, voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and in the sea, all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever our prayers are informed by the greatest reality that we're all headed to the most important thing that we will enjoy forever and ever and ever is that God be praised let's pray to that end Lord, I just pray for us as a church family that our prayers would speak truthfully about our God. Shape our priorities around the things that are eternal and most important. Help us to pray with Agor. Two things we ask, Lord. Deny them not to us before we die. 
Remove far from us falsehood and lying. Give us neither poverty nor riches. Feed us with food that is needful for us. Lest we be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Lest we be poor and steal and profane the name of our God. We pray, Lord, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond together in song. Thank you.